If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If you or I walked into a Roman home, what might we see, smell, hear, touch or taste? Drawing on archaeological evidence and literary sources, the research of Dr Hannah Platts uncovers the lived experience of the Roman home. From the everyday smells of rooms to the spectacular surprises of the dinner table. Emily Briffitt spoke to her to find out more. So hello to you, Hannah. It's lovely to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm really excited and honoured to be here talking to you, Emily. Really am. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking a bit about your book, Multi-Sensory Living in Ancient Rome. So I think a really important question for us to start with was what was the role of the home in the Roman period? How significant was the home and domestic life to them? This is a really interesting question. I I think I would because I research Roman houses, but the Roman home was really important to Romans because it was not just a place of 
domestic life of eating and sleeping and so on. It was also a place of business, of work, of entertainment. And actually also, as well as those aspects, it was also really important for key rituals. So I, I would I would really fundamentally say that the Roman home wasn't just domestic life. The Roman home did had so many different roles that it upheld in Roman society. And I think that's what's key about it. You spoke a little bit there about um, both the roles in terms of public and private. Could you tell mm. us a little bit how about how these maybe merged or intersected? You know, when we get go home today, we think, you know, you shut the door, uh, you've closed out the outside world, and that actually, you know... W- behind closed doors that is your home that is your that is your privacy that is your retreat the roman house played a key role in the public and private realm of roman society and in a sense these two aspects of life blurred together in the house so if you take as a starting point if we look at our literature um the authors tell us when describing their houses often of their wish to be visible in their home, to be their house, to be in a really public area of the city, a, a, a place to be visible, somewhere to be on display. If I could start by sort of just taking you through how you, you know, some of the architectural features of the Roman house. Um, because as you walk in to the Roman house, in general, traditionally, certainly houses of mainland Italy, in the area of Pompeii, the area I've been studying, you would walk in often to the atrium, which is the front reception hall, if you like. And this atrium uh, was a room from which other rooms led off. So bedrooms might lead off or the dining room might lead off. And the study might lead off from this room, this reception hall as well. And in the atrium, there was often, not always, but often there was a basin in the middle of the floor, a marble basin. Um, And this was located directly below a hole in the ceiling, which let in rainfall and which let in light and breezes. This room of the atrium is a really good example as to why public and private blend or come together in the Roman house. Because in the morning... For the houses of Rome's elite, they would open up their atrium for an early morning meet and greet session, which was called the salutatio. It's poorer members of society would be waiting as their dependents outside, ready to be accepted into the atrium, this reception hall. And during this ritual, um, the member of the house, the owner of the house, would hand out a gift. And that gift might be food or or money or indeed legal advice or, or something like that. And for that gift that they gave to their dependent, they would expect something back, whether that be in the form of uh, voting at election time or accompanying the elite member of society as he made his way to the forum. But fundamentally, This was where that house owner engaged with his dependents. And the more people who were waiting outside his house to be admitted for the daily meet and greet session, the more power that household owner 
was displaying to his community. So if you had reams and reams of people waiting for you before you opened the doors at dawn, that showed your wherewithal. That showed that they relied on you for help, for security, for stability. So that's one of the rituals that goes on in this room, and that happens on a daily basis. But the other thing to bear in mind is this room was also used for, it was the it was where uh, the, the dead of the household would be laid out and people would come and pay their respects. Likewise, the marriage ceremony actually started here before they all processed in the streets to the to the groom's house. So we can see this part of the house being incredibly based around public display. But what's really interesting about this room, archaeological excavation here has identified finds of loom weaving weights, which actually suggests that yes, this room was used for public ritual, really important public rituals, but actually it was also used for the daily practices of the home, the weaving. Um, we've got stories from Lucretius, uh, uh, an author, um, who talked to us about children playing in the atrium, spinning round and round like tops to, until they get dizzy and fall over. And that, to me, really emphasises that this room is not just only about public display, it also has a private life too. And so I think when we look at the atrium, we can then start really understanding how complicated a role the Roman house actually played in Roman society, and that notions of public and private that we see today as being quite prescriptive, quite distinct, you know, your house is your private realm. The Roman house was not nowhere near so clear cut. And I think that's what's really interesting. So your research focuses a lot on sort of that lived experience. Could you tell us perhaps what you mean by that? Yeah, I, that's a really useful question, actually, because, you know, when you first think about embodied experience, you were just thinking, well, what does that mean? Um, and actually, really, when we're talking about the embodied experience, we're talking about the full bodily experience of living in a space, of experiencing a space. If you think about it yourself, when you, as you sit in the room you are in, you are seeing it, absolutely. You're seeing what's around you. But to understand a space you're in, as you experience a space, you don't just see it. You hear it, you smell it, you feel it. Sometimes even you, you taste it, you know, particularly if there's a very strong smell in a room. Actually, to the extent sometimes you can even taste that smell in your mouth. Um, so what I mean by the embodied experience of the home is I mean the full physical, the full corporeal experience. What are the multiple sensory experiences that might have been had in the Roman house and how might these impact our understanding of living in that space or it, um, being in that space. From this, obviously, it's quite a significant amount of time ago. How do we know about and how are we able to interpret ancient sensory scapes? So you're right. This is a long time ago. But one of the things that's really important about 
looking at the ancient past is we have got, certainly when we're looking at ancient Rome, we have got a an absolute plethora of written sources that we can use to help us understand what people were doing or what people wanted to be seen and understood about their activities, about their daily life, and so on. But what we also have and what is really absolutely crucial and what I really drew on in my book is the archaeology. In particular, I was drawing on the sites of Pompeii and Herculaneum and more broadly, the the, the Bay of Naples as as a whole, because this area of southern Italy in Campania is wonderful. It's it's amazing because of the fact it has been because of the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD. The eruption of Vesuvius sort of shrouded much of the Bay of Naples in ash and so on, which as a result, of course, damaged an awful lot of dwellings, in fact, destroyed the cities and sadly killed many, many people. But what it has done for us means that we can go back to these destroyed cities because essentially they have been protected by those coverings and those shroudings of of ash and other debris. So that material has now been excavated and we can really look at the structures of the houses, the, the remnants, the decor, the mosaics. But not just that, we've actually got the the domestic instruments, the domestic artefacts, the the bits and pieces of daily life. So we've got the the charcoal burners or the 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 the, the amphorae that we can go back to and look at. We've got carbonized bread. Um, we can actually even look at the sewers in Herculaneum and start to understand about diet and 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 eating and 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 so on. So actually. You're absolutely right, Emily, when you say this is a long time ago, but there is a huge amount of evidence that we can use to help build a picture of what the multisensory experiences might have been. Now, one thing I will emphasise here, and I do think it is really important to emphasise, what I'm not saying is we know exactly how they would have felt and how they would have experienced all this and it'll be the same as us and so on and so forth. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. You know, we cannot assume that what we perceive today as an acceptable smell or an acceptable sound or sight would be the same in antiquity. And that's not, that's certainly not what I'm trying to do. But what I want to do, what I'm trying to do with the book is just take, take the reader through the house, through the different rooms of the house and talk about what's the evidence we've got for the different sensory experiences. Now, how those sensory experiences might have been judged, looking at the evidence, we can talk about that, but I would certainly not um, suggest in any way that what we think would be the same as what would be perceived and understood in, in antiquity. And just as a just as a coder to this point, even down to the fact that even today, every individual perceives things sensorily in a very, very different way. So I certainly couldn't say what, you know, that we can assume parallels of acceptance and disgust to be similar between us and antiquity. Although perhaps our modern judgments and our modern understandings of the senses might be quite different, 
what can we get from the evidence about the senses within the home? Say, if we were to wander around the house, what might we have expected to see, hear, taste, touch, smell? Yeah, and and that's the thing. When you look at the written evidence... Um, or when you look at the archaeological evidence, actually the sensory experiences of the Roman house were myriad, and they could vary tremendously on uh, from time of day, uh, from the activities being undertaken. You, so, for example, if you were in a house at the time of a funeral, you know that atrium, that front reception hall, might have a very different sensory. Sort of sensecape to how it might have had to its its sensecape at a different time. You know, say for the salutatio. You know, if we if we take the example of say the funeral. You know, this was where incense would be burned. This was where candles would be would be burned. This was where garlands were uh, draped around the atrium. This was where the body itself would be anointed with oils part and parcel of which was to shroud the smell of the body. Um, you would have uh, trees put outside the house. The doors of the house would be shut to warn the community outside that this ha- what house was a house in mourning and it had uh, the dead within it. Within the atrium where the body lays, uh, was, was, was lying out uh, for people to visit. As I say, the, the sensory experience there could potentially be a mixture of sort of floral fragrances and incense fragrances. But as that body lies for longer and longer and longer in the heat of a Pompeian summer, perhaps, the need for more flowers, the need for more incense, the need for more oils on the body might become ever stronger as the body itself starts to decay. I mean, the evidence suggests that a body would be laid out for possibly up to seven days. That's a long time. So actually what we're seeing here is that that sensecape, even of the funeral in the Roman house, will vary if the funeral is in the summer, if the funeral is in the winter. And suddenly the whole story of that setting changes because you could smell all sorts of things. You could hear all sorts of things in the in the salutatio, that daily meet and greet. You, you would imagine the, the hubbub of noise, of chat, of people talking in the atrium. But then also in the atrium, when people are weaving, you would have the click-clack of the loom weights as they bang together as the weaving goes on. Um, You might also, at the same time, have the sound of rain falling through the hole, um, the compluvium, the hole in in the ceiling, down as it lands into the marble basin, the impluvium. So actually, you could smell and hear and taste a whole heap of different experiences at different times. And I think that's the story that we need to tell of the Roman house. Were there perhaps any particular hotspots where the senses were maybe most catered for? Yeah, uh, uh, a really, really good question. And and it's a really good question because it's one I want to sort of almost say yes, and I also want to undermine it as well, which is really odd and a really odd approach. But there's one room that I always think that we always assume is about 
the, the crucial aspect of the dining room is about what you're eating in it. It's about taste. It's what you, what you eat. Um, and you would imagine then that the, 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 the gustatory aspect of the dining room is going to be actually the most important sense for that space. But actually what's really interesting is if you look at the evidence on dining in the ancient world, and if you look at the written and the archaeological evidence, we actually start to see that, first of all, taste in itself is not just about the um, gustatory notion of taste. It's also about what's tasteful, what's what's acceptable, what's expected or or not. So you can almost take taste in a, a variety of ways. But it's really interesting that actually, if we look at the architectural layout of um, uh, the Roman house, we can see that there's often um, a real desire to make some element of differentiation and distance between the dining room and the food preparation area of the kitchen. Um, and that distance um, could be and often was through the use of doors which will obviously work as a, as a barrier. But also we see it interestingly in other architectural features. So the idea of locating kitchens on different layers or levels or stories of the house from the dining room or putting the kitchen on one side of the peristyle garden to the dining room on the other style of the peristyle garden. We see this desire to separate in both the very, very, very big houses, houses of oh, in excess of 50 rooms to really relatively small houses, houses of maybe up to up to 10 rooms. And we see they may be restricted in terms of space, but the desire to put long corridors between the kitchen and the dining room or to put uh, big walls or, as I say, the presence of doors or to make sure at least that the dining room and the kitchen are on other sides of the atrium so that you've got as much distance between them as possible. If we come back to your question about, you know, what are there any rooms that cater very specifically for certain sensory, sensory experiences? The point being is that it was understood that actually to be interested in the smell of the food that is being served was not something that was perceived really right and proper. That actually the food that was served at the dinner party shouldn't be smelt before it appeared. So that actually the visual theatrics, the sensory theatrics of the sight of the food, of the smell of the food, and then of the taste of the food, that should all come together and that the, that the diner should be bowled over without having known what might be about to be put in front of him. We also know that in the dinner parties, you know, we've got evidence of uh, people playing games, people singing, people playing dice. We find game counters. We've got wall paintings where they talk about the singing going on at dinner parties. Uh, and we also have really, really um, unfortunate wall paintings um, well, I say unfortunate because it doesn't sound like the really ideal dinner party that I'd like to go to, but I'm, I'm not Roman. But where we've got slaves holding up diners who are drunk and who are um, maybe really feeling the worse for wear and even vomiting. We've got other pictures within wall paintings where slaves are actually putting shoes on the feet of the diners or, or what have you. So again, you've then, then there, you've got 
the sounds of the dinner party, the smell of the food and the wine, but also possibly the rather nasty olfactory sensory experience of um, maybe people being slightly overindulged. Um, So suddenly, again, that dinner party just becomes so much more than just, you know, we have served some good prawns and some good fish and some good meats or, or what have you. So why was creating such a multi-sensory experience? Why was that so significant? I, I think what I perceive it to be was it gave the owner the ability to demonstrate their wherewithal. And what it meant was they were able to control the experience of another person's body. Power is a word that is... is bandied around. But actually, when you start unpicking what we mean by I have the power to do something, one real way of demonstrating your wherewithal is by actually controlling another person. And not just their actions, but actually what they experience around them, their surroundings, that actually they have no ability to change that, that you as the owner control that visitor or that other inhabitant's experience of their surroundings in your home. I think that, for me, is a really interesting way of thinking about power. To what extent could changing this sensory experience, could change what was going on in the Roman home affect the perception of a home and its owners? I'm going to give you a little story here. There's a really great story about the Emperor Domitian. Now, this story isn't going to change how he was perceived, but it does show how um, his, how his, how experience of his home led to how he was understood. So let me, let me start. The Emperor Domitian was the last of the Flavian line. And amongst the members of Rome's elite, he was perceived to be uh, a, a real cruel uh, tyrant. Um, And we are told a story by the writer Cassius Dio of uh, the Emperor Domitian's Black Dinner, where he invited a number of equestrians and senators to his house to to dine with him. But not a normal dinner party, or indeed not a very pleasant dinner party. Everything was painted black, the, the furnishings, the room, Even the slaves, and so the members of the elite coming to dine with him, when they came along with their own retinue of slaves, he said, no, 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 you're not using your own slaves. You'll use my slaves. They, my slaves will attend to you, not yours. So that in itself really undermined that feeling of stability of of these diners because they suddenly didn't have their own slaves with them. They were having to rely on the emperor's slaves. And Remember, this man is perceived as a tyrant, as a domineering, uh, dictatorial tyrant. So they walk into the room and, 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 and it is painted black and everything's black and his slaves are attending. The only light are little funerary lanterns. The only sounds are coming from Domitian, who is talking on the subject of death. And the food being served is funerary food. These diners didn't know whether they were going to leave the meal 
alive or leave the meal being carted out dead, or indeed once they'd left, whether they would then be put to death by the emperor. So what this did was it took them out of a sense of understanding of, 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 of um, what they would usually experience or, or indeed what other dinner parties might have been that they would have experienced and put them totally on the back foot where they were totally at Domitian's um, sort of mercy for, for, for want of a better way of putting it. So that multisensory experience was to create that sense of immense power I mean, these individuals dining with the emperor were also elite. But what it did was it really undermined their elite status because it constantly reminded to them that they were dining at the behest of the emperor and were ultimately, their lives were utterly reliant on the emperor's favour. So in that sense, that multi-sensory experience really put those elite members dining with Domitian on the back foot, and he was used by Domitian to really emphasise his standing in comparison with them. What can this tell us about how important social status was to Roman contemporaries? Uh, Well, I mean, I think in terms of what it tells us about how important social status was um, in Roman society is that actually the fact that you know, there would be um, attempts to control bodily experience in so many different ways. Um, The fact that people were keen to have their houses um, in uh, public areas, or at least we read of people saying, you know, I want my house to be on the Palatine Hill. I want my house to be in a really public realm. Um, The idea that actually social status was for, at least for Rome's elite, and proving your social status was particularly important. Proving that you had standing was was crucial. You know, proving that you had that wherewithal, proving that you had the ability to do this. You know, Pliny, for example, Pliny the Younger writes these beautiful letters, um, highly arrogant letters, but they are beautiful for 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 evidence purposes. But saying, you know, my how my villa in uh, my Laurentine villa is X Y Z. It's beautiful. It smells great. It's all of that. He writes these wonderful letters describing his houses. And what he he says is, you know, I love this part of my house because I developed it myself. So sort of I've got the taste. I've got that, you know, I've got that um, ability to do this. Um, But also I I know what's acceptable. I know what's right. I know what's proper. So I, I would very much say that what we learn about control of multisensory experience certainly emphasizes to us that the sounds and smells of Roman domesticity are useful for highlighting social status. And that social status, certainly for the upper echelons, was really important to make as as clear as possible. Obviously, for the lower classes, there is perhaps a different question to be raised there. How much um, control do you have? But as I say, even in the smaller houses, we do see a desire to control sensory experience. Perhaps that's a question of looking at what Rome's elite are doing and a sort of emulation trickling down through the the other layers of Roman society as they look to see what others are doing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
Actually, that's where Pliny comes into his own because he literally writes an absolute diatribe saying, well, you don't treat people like this. And and it's really interesting because he says, oh, God, God gosh, this guy um, ha- does this with his dinner party. It's renowned that he does this with his dinner parties. I myself, I would never do that. Well, speaking about emulation, do we see this kind of attitude, this kind of creation of an experience emulated throughout a longer period or across the empire? Or is is it difficult to say that one ultimately? Yes and no. So we can look to uh, literary evidence and we can certainly see a desire and a, and, a, and an interest in the sensory experience of the home. Um, if we take, for example, the Roman architect um, Vitruvius, um, who was writing around about the um, sort of 20s BC, um, give or take, um, he is an amazing source for us for understanding Roman architectural practices as a whole. But one of his books focuses on the building of the Roman house. And he's providing a blueprint of how you should build. Now, note that I say here how you should build, not necessarily how everyone does build, because it's a blueprint of advice. So he says very specifically, what you build in... um, Spain will not necessarily be the same as what you build somewhere else. You know, what you build in the province of Bithynia Pontus would be absurd in Rome. He says, you know, to the north of the empire, it's cold, it's wet. So you need your house to be enclosed. You need to be protected from the elements when you build your houses. Yeah, And then he says, and to the oppressive south, where or to the south where the weather is oppressive, where the sun and the heat is oppressive, then you need openness. You need to build according to that climate in which your your inhabitants will find themselves. You need to therefore make sure you've got open areas, you've got uh, ability for, 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 for protecting yourself from the excesses of the heat. So that in itself really, to me, demonstrates actually a real respect for building according to location. And building might be different um, in different parts of the empire because of a need to keep an eye on the entire bodily experience, not just what you see in the house. It's what you, again, it's what you feel, it's what you smell, it's what you, it's the, it's the air, it's the water, it's the, it's that stability and security that keeping an eye on where you're building can actually make that house a much more, well, I suppose pleasurable, but actually it's just more sensible to build according to to where you live. But 
just just to finish this off, you know, what we also see is we've we've actually got, you know, evidence of um, housing from um, Roman Britain, for example, which if we look at the structures um, of the housing from Roman Britain, they are structured really quite differently. Not so much the evidence of the atrium um, with that opening in the ceiling. So from talking a little bit, perhaps about the empire itself and as a wide thing. If we narrow it down a little bit, you focus more in your research on Pompeii and Herculaneum. Could you tell us a bit about maybe how a wider city or town's organisation and the activity that went on within that might affect the lived experience of the home? So as you say, we've just looked at the empire, uh, Rome's empire sort of geographically speaking, the expanse of it and the the chronological expanse of it, my evidence is much more focused on Pompeii and Herculaneum because we have the residences there. We have far more built archaeological evidence from Pompeii and Herculaneum because of Vesuvius. Uh, We don't have the same um, amount of evidence from, from Rome. So what I wanted to do with my book was use the evidence from Pompeii and Herculaneum and then say, well, we've got these houses. So what can we tell about embodied experience, the multi-sensory experience of these, of, of, of living in these cities. And actually what's really interesting is we can see that there are similarities between Herculaneum and Pompeii, but there are also differences too. And I think that was something that I was really, really surprised about when I was doing my research. So if we can just go back to this notion, I mean, I was talking about the, the room for cooking, the kitchen. Uh, most kitchens were where you not only did your cooking, but it was also where the toilet was located. It was an area for um, disposal of waste. Um, So you would often find the kitchen and the toilet located either exactly in the same room or or very, very close, you know, very, very close to each other in the same area. Um, So what's interesting is we see this, we see this proximity of toilets and kitchens together in both Pompeii and Herculaneum. And that's that's one thing. We also see this desire to prevent the dissemination of smells from these rooms into the rest of the house in both the houses from Pompeii and Herculaneum. So when we look at the floor, when we look at the archaeological remains, we can see that in the thresholds of many of the kitchens, in Pompeii and Herculaneum, we can see evidence of door architecture. So although the doors themselves be in wood, many of which have eroded away, we see the evidence of door architecture in the form of hinges or post holes or uh, curtain rings or something like that. We see evidence of door architecture. So that's one piece of evidence to show that they're very keen, both in Pompeii and Herculaneum, to stop the dissemination of, of, of smells throughout the house. But what we do see is in terms of the specifics of where they actually locate these kitchen stroke toilets. Because in Pompeii, we find many of the houses situate their toilets and kitchens in the middle or the back of their house. In Herculaneum, it's a very different picture. In Herculaneum, we see very much the bulk of their toilets pretty much about 70%, 69-70% at the front of their house and very few elsewhere. Now, the reason for this 
is the topography of these two towns. They vary. They're very, very different. The topography of Pompeii was it sat on porous and permeable subsoil. And so could you could use cesspits for the storage of waste. And that would work fine. Herculaneum, on the other hand, was built on rather more compact, um, tough sort of subsoil, uh, sort of subsurface, which had really, really poor permeability. So cesspits connected to latrines wouldn't work. They, they just wouldn't function. And actually, they would need to be emptied a lot. So as a result, Herculaneum's toilets were often connected to the town's sewers under the streets. Now, to connect the toilets to the sewers and make that easier, you wanted to be close to the main road and the sewer underneath that main road. That was going to be preferable. In Pompeii, you didn't have the same query. You didn't have the same issue. Actually, you had much more freedom because you were using cesspits. They could be located wherever in your house, wherever suited you. So what this is, what this really interestingly does, is it offered the owner in Pompeii more choice as to where you could locate your, your toilet and, and, and olfactory, the area that makes olfactory stench. Um, you could locate it, you had more freedom. In Herculaneum, you were much more tied as to what you could do. And I, for me, that really, I was so excited by that. I, I mean, that is quite sad, really, to say I was really excited by the location of toilets and kitchens when I was doing my research. But I really was, because that was where, actually, the, the, the complete ingenuity of Roman architecture comes to the fore. But actually, you build according to your topography. Genius. Cesspits work some places. Cesspits don't work other places. Build according to what works. How much choice did owners have over what they could do? And how much was it, that's the structure of the household, that's how we have to, that's how we have to build in this particular place? It's, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. And I mean, you know, when we're asking about who had the choice, um, it's, it's, it's a really difficult question because you would imagine that the owner would have a considerable level of choice. And, and certainly we do get from Pliny um, that he builds certain parts of his house according to what he wants to do. And he's very proud of his building of certain parts of the house. They become, certain parts of his house become his favourite area um, for himself. But obviously, a lot of owners won't be nearly as wealthy as Pliny. So um, to what extent you are actually having to work within the remit of your neighbourhood? Um, and that's 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 actually really interesting. We do. There are evidence of houses having almost shifting where certain rooms of their houses are because of what's going on in uh, building in elsewhere in the neighbourhood. So they want to move away from certain things. So... So if I can give an example, the House of the Che in Pompeii, um, it's really interesting because we can see how over time it moves its kitchen from the back of the house to the front of the house. And the argument possibly behind why this is done um, is, is perhaps because actually a neighbouring building was a felonica, which was where laundry 
was washed. And this potentially was quite a smelly process. Urine was used in the processing of uh, cleaning togas and so on and so forth. So possibly the owner of the House of the Chai had to decided to move parts of the house to the front or the, 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 the role of the rooms at the back to the front to get away from the smells that were being, um, that were occurring in a neighbouring uh, building. Um, so whilst Pliny might build large parts of his house and be really proud of that, and he tells us he is, even other smaller residences and other smaller houses, their owners seem to be at least having some element of um, responsibility for either shaping their home or at least changing the structure of their home according to what they want to get get from their home. Were there any particular senses that were perhaps more valued than others? So when we're thinking about the senses and we're thinking about valuing sensory experience and the different senses, sight has often been the most valued sense in society. And in, actually, you know, we can go back to, oh, um, Aristotle in the fourth century BC, who orders the senses according to hierarchy. You know, and he labels sight as the chief sense, as the primary sense. So in a sense, you're right, there were hierarchies of how the senses were perceived. But fundamentally, and looking at the evidence, there is, in my view, no doubt that the Romans were absolutely aware of the real importance of the other sensory experiences as well. One of the things you've spoken quite a lot about is the owners. You've also brought up other inhabitants, maybe slaves and guests. Could you perhaps unpick a little bit about how they've, they might experience the home? Yeah, and actually that's, Emily, I have to say, I think that is a really, really important question for, for us to be thinking about here. Um, because part of my research, I mean, I was focused on the Roman, the, the Roman house as um, the domus. Now, the domus is a, a single family dwelling. Uh, there are other types of residences in the ancient Roman world. Now, that having been said, I've been focusing on pretty small, up to absolutely enormous. But you're absolutely right when you're thinking about the guests coming to the house or indeed the other inhabitants. And so if I could start with thinking about the slaves, because actually it's also like we don't have a singular owner experience and a singular singular owner aim for their house and controlling experience of their house. The, the experience of the slave in the house will vary considerably. And the reason for this is not only are there different families with different slaves, um, so wealthier families may have a number of slaves, less wealthy families may have only one or two slaves. But in some of these families where there are a number of slaves, you would find slaves with um, specific roles. And as a result, one must therefore think, well, those roles, your job, what's required of you as a slave, will then therefore dictate what your sensory experience of that house would be. If you are a cook, imagine you are working in a kitchen. The kitchens are small. This would be 
the realm of a slave or a few slaves as they cook, as they prepare the food for the house. Now, looking at the archaeological evidence, these many of these kitchens were pretty small and lacked significant ventilation, maybe a small window that would provide some light, a bit of air, but not much. And then, as I've said, most of these kitchens had doorways, uh, which you would imagine would have been closed over uh, at the time of guests visiting the house and and cooking going on and, and, and so on. There's also been some really interesting research done on the height of kitchen counters or indeed the kitchen ovens that were quite low. Now, that suggests that actually potentially, depending on the height of the slave, you, know, you could potentially be quite crunched over the oven as you are producing the meal. The potential here is that you would be burning yourself. You would be quite, it could be quite painful, particularly as you, as slaves get older, you know, back pain and so on and so forth. You could be injured with burns. The heat of the kitchen must be immense. And also, you know, the the smell, the grease that starts embedding in your pores, in your hair, in your clothes that you can't get away from. Now, that's one slave role. But the attendant to the dining room is a very different role, and that would be a different slave. And we read this in the literature, that the attendant to the dining room needed to be more olfactorily pleasing, you know, smelling nice, visually nice, that actually would excite the the diners um, in various ways, um, would interest the owners, uh, the diners in various ways, would certainly not be a put off because they had burns all over their arms and stank of food and so on. So actually, the sensory experience of the slaves of the house could vary significantly depending on the role that you had. And you also mentioned guests. And I think this is the other part of the coin which I think is so interesting, because likewise, you may invite a number of guests to your dinner party, and there was a suggestion of the, the right amount of numbers, so you could have them seated around a table in the triclinium. Um, on three benches, you'd have three people on each bench, so you'd have the ideal number of nine at the dinner party, um, generally. But that doesn't mean you would treat all nine in the same way. They would be seated according to perceived hierarchy. And those at the lower end of the perceived hierarchy might also be fed rather differently from how those at the upper end of the perceived hierarchy might be fed. And we actually, again, we get this from our literary evidence where we get um, Pliny telling us of stories that he's heard of individuals being fed, you know, really ropey food Whilst in the same dinner party, other individuals are being fed the most glorious concoctions of food. And, you know, we have we have these brilliant stories of dining. Um, there's this brilliant, brilliant epigram from a satirical poet called um, Marshall. And he writes uh, of this great story of this freedman putting on a dinner party, and it's, it's this freedman called Zoilus. And the discussion of how Zoilus is treating his guests in that he's giving some of his, you know, sort of favourite, he's giving them the nice food, the good wine, the best, 
the best food. Everyone else is just sitting there going, drinking rubbish, eating rubbish. And he's sitting also snoring and being fanned by a slave as he sort of reclines in in sort of luxury. So actually, even the experience of the guest is not uniform. Do we know anything about how maybe some of these guests responded? Maybe if the party wasn't up to par or they were treated appallingly? Yeah, and and that's what's really interesting. And again, actually, that's where Pliny comes into his own because he literally writes an absolute diatribe saying, well, you don't treat people like this. And and it's really interesting because he says, oh, God, God, gosh, this guy... um, does this with his dinner party. It's renowned that he does this with his dinner parties. I myself, I would never do that. Everyone just eats what I eat at my dinner parties. Now, of course, he is trying to make a comment about his own status there by saying, I treat everyone the same. And the other author that I mentioned, Marshall, and in fact, another satirist, Juvenal, they likewise make really snide comments about don't go and eat at this person's house because they will treat you awfully. And indeed, that story from Marshall of Zoilus, the freedman, we've got another really good example of of a similar freedman dinner party uh, written by Petronius, who was um, a, a writer under the reign of the emperor Nero. And he likewise talks about the Cana Trimalchionis, the, the dinner party of Trimalchio, and he tells us this story, and it's 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 a novel, uh, it's a it's a it's a fiction as such. And he tells us this story of this dinner party at this freedman's house. But although it's a fiction, it's very much for it to work as a as a fiction that people will read and engage with. There has to be an element of some sort of social engagement that people would look at this and say, "Oh yeah, I've I've been at houses like that. I've eaten at places like that." So now I will emphasize that both the examples of Zoilus and the example of Trimalchio, these are ex-slaves. So society is judging them as having been slaves in the first place anyway. And, you know, these authors of Marshall and um, Petronius are also making a judgment of these guys, of these individuals that having been slaves. And that is embedded in how they're reading and telling the story about these dinner parties. But fundamentally, We do see from those stories, you do open yourself up to real criticism if you get it wrong. Do we hear of people who perhaps overindulge in creating an experience? Yes. I mean, with that, we could go back to the example of Trimalchio, because actually, you know, what he did was he took things to such an extreme um, that Everyone just, I mean, the comments, the, the, the way it's written about by Petronius is it's its just taking it so far um, that it's just almost unacceptable. It's, 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 it's just basically revolting. What can this multi-sensory perspective add to our current understanding of the Roman period? Well, so I, I think this question about what can... Um, the multi-sensory perspective add to understanding domestic life in the Roman world is a really important question. And I think fundamentally, sight has dominated our understanding of the past for so long. Um, As I said earlier, you know, it has been seen as the chief 
sense. But as I said also earlier, we don't just see a space. We hear it, we smell it, we feel it, we taste it. And actually, if we start to think about those variety of experiences, as well as thinking about the variety of individuals who might be involved in those experiences, I think what we can do is start really asking more questions about what the domestic space of ancient Rome was like. Thinking about, you know, what it actually meant for how people interacted with one another. What we can learn from changes in houses, the movement of rooms from one part to another, or the the the, the changing of how space is being used, um, and how that might be responding to something outside, to uh, you know changes in the neighbourhood, the something like how might we be able to see the impact of the sensory realm actually changing how or or impacting or influencing how Romans lived within their house. If we only look at sight in the house and what Romans saw, what a house owner might see from one room into another, we are only seeing part of the picture. We are only understanding a partial amount of the evidence. Because going back to the literature, going back to the archaeology, actually you can see the constant discussion of the sound and the smell and the taste. And we can see this in the archaeological remains. And I don't just mean the floor plans. I mean going back to the sites themselves and thinking about how those sites and how those bodily experiences within those residences might have been impacted um, and manipulated. And why were they impacted and manipulated? How were they impacted, manipulated, and why? And how might that help us understand the complex nature of Roman society and the nuances and interactions of Rome's hierarchies, Rome's slaves, Rome's elite, Rome's lower classes? What other avenues of research can this open up? That was Dr Hannah Platts, ancient historian and archaeologist at Royal Holloway University of London. Hannah's book on this subject is Multisensory Living in Ancient Rome, Power and Space in Roman Houses. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.